Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast, the show where Mark Meckler and Rita Peters discuss hot-button issues from a biblical perspective, helping to equip other Christians to bring light to a darkened culture. Rita is the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, and Mark serves as the CEO and co-founder for Convention of States Action. Find out more by visiting conventionofstates.com slash pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm your host, Rita Peters, with my co-host, Mark Meckler. And today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to be talking about the war in Israel, what it's about, what the consequences may be, why we as Christians should be particularly concerned about the nation of Israel, and how we can be praying over this conflict. Our regular Crossroads audience probably knows that Mark and I are both devoted Christians. What some of you may not know is that Mark is also Jewish, and for that reason, he brings a very unique perspective to this whole discussion. So, Mark, I'd love for you to just take a few minutes before we get started talking about the war and just share about your Jewish background as well as your testimony and how you came to faith in Christ. So I grew up in a secular Jewish household in Los Angeles, California, and that was super normal uh, for L.A. There's a lot, there are still, there were back then, a lot of Jewish people in Los Angeles. Uh, my high school is probably 30% Jewish, I want to say, so it's a really normal environment. But I would say that of those 30% or so, probably 90% of them were what I would call non-religious Jews, secular Jews. Sometimes I refer to them or my family as uh, ritual Jews. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, to some, sometimes to some extent, we celebrated the high holidays, uh, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Passover. We, we knew those things were taking place. They were tradition in my family. Uh, sometimes we would have special dinners. We'd lit the menorah on Hanukkah mostly, um, but we didn't understand any of the religious implications of that stuff. There was no God in our household that was not talked about. Uh, and, and so I grew up in this environment where I would describe it as very Jewish, but not religious in any sense. And so that was kind of the, the background of my upbringing. My folks were very strong in Judeo-Christian values so I learned all of that stuff. But if you had said to them, well, where's all that come from? They wouldn't have said, well, of course, the Bible. They would have said, I don't know. I mean, that's just what's right. And so they probably got mm -hmm. that from their parents who got it from their parents who, who actually had gotten it from the Bible, uh, who actually came up in the old country in Ukraine and, and were believing Jews. So that's the environment I grew up in. I go off to college. It's no surprise that I was easily influenced by the secular world because that was really my world. I didn't have any religious bulwark against that stuff. I took a bunch of religion classes and mostly my religion professors taught us about Christianity. That was the most evil thing ever to take place on the face of the earth. More people wow. died in the name of Christianity than anything else. All this really bad stuff to me was just kind of like, okay, well, that's what I learned. Also along the way, as we all do, uh, I met Christians that were hypocritical, that didn't seem to be living out their faith. You know, I now know, well, that's because they're human beings. <laughs> it's uh, right. we're, everybody's hypocritical to some extent. All humans have 
the potential for good and evil inside of them. It has nothing to do with their particular faith, but it sort of, for me, confirmed what I had heard in these religion classes. Oh, they go to church on Sunday and then on Monday, they're not nice people. And so, okay, well, that's bad. So fast forward, I graduated from college. I went to law school. In a way, law school is damaging to human beings. If I think if you don't have a religious upbringing, <laughs> law school teaches moral relativism. It really does. I mean, one of the things, and I really didn't like this about law school. I'm always a person who's really believed strongly in right and wrong. And one of the first things you learn in law school is how to argue both sides of any case. And I remember yeah. thinking to myself, yeah, but one side's right and one side's wrong. Like, I don't want to argue both sides of any case, right? I have an opinion. Right. And so I think for me, this played into this uh, whole anti-religion thing. And uh, you know, I could see both sides of any case. And, and so then I got married out of law school, divorced, long story, short marriage, year and a half. It was a very difficult time for me. And then I met my wife. And there's a pivotal event in my life, obviously, for all of us. I've been married 30 years now. So for me, it was the, the biggest event of my life until I was saved. Uh, and so I met Patty. She's always been a believing Christian. Uh, she was raised as a Catholic and ultimately drifted away from the church and found her own personal relationship with the Lord. That's really what her heart mm -hmm. was seeking. So I watched this off to the side. It wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. But it didn't bother me that it was for her. I think she did something truly incredible that I'll, I'll never really actually understand. I'm thankful for it, which is why would a believing Christian woman choose to yoke herself to a divorced Jewish atheist? I don't recommend it. <laughs> I, you know, it worked out great for us, for me especially, but I don't recommend it. It's not what I would want my kids to do. Her dad right. said to her, you know, look, we love Mark, but this probably isn't a good idea. And she said, I don't know how it works out, but I believe that my God would never separate me from my husband. And I know he's working hmm. in Mark's life and I have faith in God. And hmm. it seems crazy. <laughs> I think it is kind of crazy, but it worked. And so I, I was married. I had my first son. We had our first son, Jacob. And I remember looking in his crib when he first came home from the hospital and just looking at that miracle and thinking that's a miracle. And just, you, you know, if you're a parent, you've had that moment, your baby's yeah. laying in the crib, maybe they're laying on your chest and you just feel them breathe. And you think, I thought that's way more than just biology. I know I learned <laughs> about this in biology class, but that's not biology. That's a miracle. And I remember thinking, yeah. what does that mean? Like, if I think that's a miracle, mm -hmm. what does that mean? And it really started my head spinning and thinking about, I mean, for lack of a better term, what's the meaning of life, right? It's, it was so yeah. big to it, me to have a baby, something so small. Yeah, Go ahead. You were an atheist. So yes. what does it mean? A miracle? What, it, how, how can that be? Right. So um, that started me sort of seeking. And I would say that's the period of life where I become a seeker. Uh, it's a, again, a long story. We could do a whole podcast on this, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm a reader, I'm a learner, I'm a studier. I studied Taoism, Buddhism, Jainism, which is the precursor to Hinduism. I looked at philosophies and religions all over the world. I spent some time in India and was just found it fascinating, all these different faiths intersecting. And I would say in all that time period, I learned a lot. I saw a lot of interesting, good stuff. I saw bad stuff. And I felt nothing. There was nothing that resonated with my heart. And, and it's not like I felt like I need to find something, but I was just trying to figure out life. 
And, yeah. uh, and so ultimately I did not, ne- I never looked at Christianity. I never read the Bible. <laughs> I never talked to anybody about Christianity. I never went to church because that was evil. That was bad stuff. Why would I do that? Right. Right. You already knew that. Yeah. So that was a given, which in hindsight, this is the most embarrassing part, Rita. I knew nothing. I literally <laughs> knew nothing about Christianity, right? Mm. But I was convinced that it was evil. It's so ignorant, the level of ignorance that I um, that I expressed, the, the, the certainty of opinion on total ignorance is incredible in hindsight. It's really humiliating. <laughs> Whenever I need to humble myself, I just remember how sure I was about a subject about which I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, so when I got involved in politics about 13 years ago, started traveling all over the country, I met a bunch of amazing, righteous Christians everywhere I went. Among them, mm. a guy a lot of you know, Mike Ferris, uh, who became a great Christian mentor of mine. Uh, I met one of my closest friends, Tim Dunn, who became a great Christian mentor of mine. I was not seeking a Christian mentor, but God was seeking Christian mentors for me and crossing mm. my paths with them. I had the opportunity to meet Dr. James Dobson, who I've now met a number of times. I sat at a big dinner with him. It was across the table from me. There were all kinds of famous people around the table. It was in the tea party days. So for some reason, I was at that table. I don't remember anybody else at that table except for Dr. Dobson and his wife, Betty. And I remember watching him interact with all these super famous people, ambassadors, senators, people like that. And I remember total humility from him. He didn't want to talk about himself. He was not interested in anything he had to say. He didn't need to prove himself. I knew who he was. This is yeah. one of the most famous men of God on yeah. earth at the time. Right. And I remember thinking, I don't understand what I'm witnessing really, but it's mm-hmm. very attractive. Like if I could be mm-hmm. anybody at this table, I'd want to be him, not any of the other people. I like how he is. Something is coming from him that is just so attractive. And I've since realized to me, one of the most attractive traits in human beings is humility. I just... Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just, I mean, it's obviously something we learned from Jesus now that I know that I'm a believer, but I didn't know at the time. So I met a bunch of people. They're all great Christians. And they're, I'm asking them, I don't understand. You're in politics. It's so ugly and dirty and nasty. And it's a brass knuckle sport. And how come you seem so happy? <laughs> like you seem really settled. And people would say things to me that were really weird at the time. Like, oh, you didn't know me before I knew Jesus. Or hmm. I appreciate that, but all credit to my Lord and Savior. And all that stuff to me at the time, I mean, for those of us, those of you who are watching this program, you're thinking, well, yeah, that's normal stuff. That's what we say. I would say that now. Back then, I was just like, that's some weird cryptic language that I just don't understand. (laughs) And so, uh, but it was a common theme. I'm smart enough to recognize a pattern that caused me to start exploring. I got mentoring from people like Mike Ferris and Tim Dunn. I started reading scripture. And a big turning point for me as a Jew was, reading about Paul in Rome and he's waiting for his audience with Caesar and the Jewish authorities come to him and they accuse him of not being a Jew, not keeping Mm. the law, right? Not doing the things you have to do to be a Jew. And he says, are you kidding? I'm a Hebrew among Hebrews. And I'm reading that thinking, whoa, hold on a second. He's a Christian. He's, he's following Jesus Christ. How can he say he's a Jew among Jews or a Hebrew among Hebrews? And I started to have discussions with Tim about this and And one of the biggest things that happened was I said, wait, so you can be a Jew and be a Christian? And Tim said, well, sort (laughs) of. 
he said, that's not quite right. You are supposed to be a Christian if you're a Jew. Like this is the way God intended it. God promised to the Jewish people a Messiah and the Messiah has come. It's the completion or the fulfillment of the promise. So it's not just that you can, this is what God intended for you. He said to me, for you personally, for your people, for the Jews, this was the promise that was made to them. And that opened a door in my heart to start studying scripture. I read C.S. Lewis. I read uh, every apologetics I could get my hand on, Lee Strobel. I started reading all the stuff. I started studying more and more scripture. And then one day the epiphany came, right? And so we all know how that happens. I was sitting on a mountaintop and the skies opened up and right. the Holy Spirit flooded my body. Isn't that the story, how it's supposed uh, to yeah. go? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, instead, what happened to me is one day I just thought, this all makes sense to me. I think there's mm -hmm. more evidence on the side for Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior than there is against that. It's like there really isn't evidence against it. I think I believe this stuff. And mm -hmm. I prayed to the Lord. I remember... The prayer was probably as awkward as a human being could possibly be because <laughs> I sure thinking, okay, I have no idea how to do this. I like, nobody's taught me this. I don't know what you're supposed to do. But I remember just saying, you know, if you'll have me, Lord, I'm yours. I, you're my Lord mm. and savior. You're the creator of the universe. I'm sinful and insignificant and whatever you will have of me, I give myself to you. I remember mm. almost word for word. That's what I, and I was very awkward. Like I don't really get this, but I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. So that's how I became a Christian. And mm -hmm. what happened to me, uh, it's obviously been sort of a growth in my faith, like everybody reading more and more scripture, studying. The biggest thing for me has been falling in love with the Lord. And really, mm -hmm. this phrase would have seemed crazy to me 10 years ago, being yeah. on fire for the Lord, right? Just yeah. wildly passionate about it. When I started to really dig in, I felt like I had fallen in love for the first time in my life. There's that feeling mm. of like just complete overwhelm and physical sensation and emotion mm. and all of that. And I'll tell you, Rita, I've never lost that. That's 10 years ago mm. now. I'm 61 years old. Um, it's helped Patty to really reignite her passion for the Lord because mm. as an adult believer, as a new adult believer, there's this weird thing for me anyway, that I see the Lord in everything. I, I remember mm. when I came to believe, it's like getting a new car. If you get a new pickup truck and you drive around town, everybody has that new pickup truck now. You didn't see it before, but now you right. see it everywhere, right? And yeah. that's how I came to see the Lord. It's every day of my life, I'd be like, oh, well, that's God clearly interacting. Oh, well, God obviously had a hand in that. And for me, that's become... Literally an everyday occurrence. I see God everywhere I go. I get up and I walk outside and I see the sunrise and and I think, thank you, Lord. It's a hot day and I think, man, I love the heat. It's so nice and it's raining and I think, oh, the Lord made it rain and everything's going to be green. And I mm. see somebody do a kind deed and I'll say, the Lord is touching that person's heart. I just, it's just natural for me. Uh, mm. But I never, and this is really important as a Jew, I never lost the sense of of being Jewish. And yeah. in fact, I am much more Jewish today because I'm a Christian from in my heart than I ever was before becoming. It's like not even close. It's a yeah. hundredfold. 
Yeah. Well, I'm noticing that too, as I'm listening to your testimony, which I've heard before, but listening to it again today. And Mark, I have to say, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you as my brother in Christ. There's another one of those phrases that would have been really (laughs) creepy to you before, right? But I can honestly say when I met you back in 2013, you were like a baby Christian back then. But today you inspire and encourage me in my faith all the time. And you do that for countless people across the country who are part of the Convention of States organization. So yeah, you know, when you met me in 2013, that's the year I became a Christian. So yeah, really a baby Christian. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to move on so I don't tear up too much. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested in the fact that even though, you know, you grew up as a, I would call you a nominal Jew, you know, right. you, you were Jewish and had a Jewish background and observed some of the um, traditions. But since then, I know that you've studied and learned a lot about the Jewish faith. And what I want to ask you about as we, you know, transition to talking about this terrible war in Israel is why should Christians have a particular care and concern for the nation of Israel? Because I'll be honest, I get it a little bit, but tell me more about why that should be. Yeah, let's just, we'll start with the faith basis, the biblical basis, because that's my foundation for everything. Um, It sounds cliche to say this, so forgive me for sounding cliche, but it's a really important fact, which is, Jesus was uh, an observant Jew. And (laughs) that's so our entire faith comes out of the Jewish faith. Uh, Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus lived in a Jewish culture in Israel, right? In a, in a time when the Hebrews had, uh, and there's, there's periods where the nation is dispersed and the nation comes back together. But in that time period, the Jews lived as a people in the Holy land where they live today. So this is the culture as Christians, we have to understand this is the culture in which and the nation in which our faith as Christians is forged. And it was forged, I would argue, in a time like this, when the Jewish faith, the Jewish people were absolutely under assault, under brutal uh, regime-based assault by the Roman Empire, and frankly, by everyone around them. The, the Jews were not liked. The Jews were not liked because they were different. And they were different in a way, we talk about the chosen people, and people are sensitive about that. The Jews were chosen in a way that was very difficult. Imagine us living in our society, and, and we experience this as Christians today, uh, So, but a, at a greater magnitude, imagine where you are called out to be something. We are called out as Christians to be light in a dark world. And you're absolutely persecuted for it. And back then, mm-hmm. the religions were primarily polytheistic. They were pagan. Right. They virtually all practiced child sacrifice. And God mm-hmm. said to the Jews, no, you're not going to do any of that stuff. And you're going to mm-hmm. separate yourselves. You're my chosen people. And imagine how that comes off in that world. It's like, Oh, you're better than everybody else, right? Yeah. And so we're gonna we're gonna wipe you out because you're better than everybody else. So the Jew that you believe you're better than everybody else. So the Jews are persecuted, and our faith comes from this. And our faith is rooted in Jerusalem. The entire Western world, all of Western civilization, 
is rooted in Jerusalem. It's the intersection between Athens and Jerusalem. But there is no Christianity without Judaism. There is no Christianity without the historic Israel. And I would argue that our faith as Christians is at stake in the current fight in Israel. That's our hmm. holy land. That's where it all began. And and if you read your scriptures, that's that's where it all ends. And so yeah. that story is our story. And we cannot, as Christians, separate ourselves from what goes on in Israel. Hmm. That's helpful. Now, Mark, before we started recording the program today, I confess to you my ignorance on this whole topic. You know, I hear bits and pieces on the news, but just tell us about this war. How and why did it start? Who are the players? Just educate me. Yeah, so I I'm, I'm want to keep this very simple because it actually is very simple. And I think okay. this is really important for people to understand. When you hear commentators say it's complex and it's old and it's nuanced, I think they're misleading you. Hmm. Here's the, the simplest way to put this war. The, the side against Israel, which in this case is represented by the terrorist organiz organization Hamas, I would mm -hmm. argue that it is represented by greater Islam around the world, says that Jews should be eradicated. They want to kill all the Jews. This is mm -hmm. not Mark Meckler saying this. this is really important. You can go online yeah. and you can see this. Hamas says this. Hezbollah, who is another terrorist organization in the north, uh, in southern Lebanon, says this. Iran says this. You hear this from uh, Muslim leaders all over the world and very openly professed right now. You will hear the phraseology, and this is important, they say, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. Okay, so there, first of all, there's no country called Palestine. There never has mm -hmm. been in all of history. Yeah. What they mean by that, the river, they mean the Jordan River, right, which is on the, the Israeli side of the Jordan River is the West Bank. So that, that's one okay. edge of Israel. And the sea, they're saying to the Mediterranean, that's where Gaza is. They're mm -hmm. saying the entire country has to be quote unquote, Palestine. And what they mean by that and what they say by that is drive every Jew from the land, kill every Jew. Yeah. What they're talking about is genocide. And they're open yeah. in their desire for genocide. These are the modern day Nazis. And I would argue this sounds, I apologize for the rhetorical flourish. It's not meant as such. They're actually worse than Nazis. And it's hard to imagine that, but the Nazis tried to hide their crimes uh, when mm -hmm. the war was coming to an end, they tried to hide the concentration camps. We just saw this terrorist attack. Hamas is filming the brutalization and putting it out on the internet with pride. Okay, so this is important. Yeah. So you have one side that believes that the other side has no right to exist and they should all die. You have the other side, which is the Jewish state, which would like to live in peace with everybody, with all of their neighbors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's an old saying, which is, if the Jews would lay down their arms today, tomorrow, all the Jews would be dead. If the Arabs would lay down their arms tomorrow, there would be peace. And this is fundamental to understanding the region. And when people say it's nuanced and it's comp, it's not. It's one yeah. group of people that believe, uh, and their religion, they believe, commands them to eradicate to commit genocide against mm -hmm. another group of people. 
And it's another group of people that just wants to live in peace with everybody. That's the difference between the two sides in this conflict philosophically. It's really fascinating, Mark. So it's not even just about like a land grab or seeking more power. It sounds like it really is about just killing Jewish people. Is that is that right? That is correct. And look, this, this goes for those of us who study scripture, this goes all the way back. And uh, so we are the people of Abraham, the people of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abraham, to I'll do a little bit of Old Testament history. Abraham's married to Sarah. They're very old. They have no children. God comes to Abraham, says, I'm going to make you a father of a mighty nation uh, whose people will be as numerous as the scars, stars in the sky. He's 90 years old when that's said. I mean, it just seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Sarah is 80 years old when that promise is made. Like for us, it, we think that's ridiculous. They thought it was ridiculous. Uh, when When Abraham gets older, Sarah comes to him and says, look, I'm barren. You need to have a child. You should uh, go have relations with Hagar, who's one of her servants, and and she'll give you a child. And and indeed, Ishmael is born. Uh, and then later, uh, the God and two angels come to Abraham and said, we told you you're going to have a child. By next year, when we come back, you'll have a son by Sarah. Sarah laughs at that. She thinks it's still mm-hmm. ridiculous. You know, she's just an old woman. Indeed, they have a child. That's Isaac. Isaac becomes, through Abraham and Sarah, the father of the Jewish people. This is the the tribes of Israel come from there. Ishmael and his mom, Hagar, are banished by Sarah's order. They have to leave. He becomes the the father, the lineage of Muhammad and and all of Islam. So this is a division in the people of the book that goes back to the very beginning. And so it's important to remember how old this fight is and how far back it goes. That history actually matters. The geography matters as well. So if you look on a map and you look at Israel, Israel is a tiny wedge of land. Uh, It is smaller than one of the smallest countries in the world, El Salvador. It is the size of New Jersey, to give you an idea. Wow. It is surrounded entirely by the sea on one side and on all other sides by Muslim countries that hate the Jews and want to keep them from existing. In 1948, after World War II, that area is not a nation where Israel is. There's no nation that claims that area. There's no state there. It is essentially a colony, a territory of Great Britain. And Great Britain partitions that area under something called the Balfour Declaration and gives territory to the Jews and territory to the Arabs. And the Jews say, awesome, we're good to go. A tiny, tiny area. And the Arabs say, absolutely no, we will we'll never do it. We'll never acknowledge Jewish territory. We'll never acknowledge the Jews be allowed to live. We're going to fight forever. And this has been going on since 1948. When that happens, by the way, every single Jew is expelled from every Muslim country. Somewhere between wow. eight and 900,000. We don't know the exact numbers. They're dispossessed of their properties. They're killed. They're chased out. And Israel accepts every one of those refugees. Mm-hmm. And they become part of the new nation of Israel. Immediately, every Arab state around Israel attacks Israel militarily. Unbelievably, a miracle by only the hand of God preserves the nation of Israel. They defeat all these nations. 
And there's been a series of wars ever since with all these nations trying to eradicate Israel. And Israel, I believe, and I think this is very clear, you know, I said, I see God's hand in everything. If you don't see this, then I don't know what would make you see God's hand. This little tiny nation, now right. 9 million people, stands against over a billion Muslims worldwide and stands. It's unbelievable that this has happened. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of the history of the nation of Israel, very abbreviated. Now to the present day conflict, Gaza is a very, very tiny strip of land on the southern coast of Israel, the far southern coast. It's bounded on one side by the ocean, uh, two sides by Israel, and then the last side by Egypt. Egypt has a border with Gaza. And Arabs have governed themselves in Gaza. It's only Arabs. No Jews are allowed to live there. Governed itself since 2006 when the Israelis turned Gaza over to the Arabs. They had held it and provided security there for forever. But finally, it was untenable. The world put pressure on them to turn it over to the Arabs. The Arabs have governed themselves there ever since freely. Billions of dollars of aid have flown in, uh, flowed in from all over the world. And that aid has been used primarily to build terror infrastructure, to buy arms to attack Israel, uh, to send rockets into Israel. There's been a couple of what they call intifadas, attacks against Israel from there. Israel just wants to be left alone. You will hear people describe what's going on in Gaza as an open-air prison. There are walls between Gaza and Israel, which were just breached in this terror attack. They were built for Israeli security. It's yeah. not because they don't want to deal with the Muslims. They would rather trade with the Muslims. By the way, 20% of the Israeli population are Arab with full huh. rights. They're in the wow. Israeli Knesset, which is their parliament. There are Arabs on the Israeli Supreme Court. They have full rights mm -hmm. in Israeli society. So you'll hear Israel described as an apartheid society. Any Arab that wants to fully participate in Israeli society is welcome to. Folks, we are all out of time for today, but in light of the importance and timeliness of this topic, we're going to be back again next week with Mark Meckler for part two of this episode on the war in Israel. I hope you'll join us again then. I want to thank you all for listening. I also want to thank our generous sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries with Christian Radio, Wishing Well Florists and Travel Services, and our good friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren in Harrisonburg. Thank you all for listening and for your encouragement and continued financial support. If you'd like to make a donation to help keep Crossroads on the air, you can do so by check to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg, Virginia, 22803. I'm Rita Peters with Mark Meckler, inviting you to join us again next week for another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com.